It is a tale of two metals today. Uranium, which has blown through $100 at $106 a pound here. And nickel, which seems to have all the headlines here. Mines are closing what seems like left, right, and center here. As you'll hear in our many news stories on nickel. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and it continues to be interesting here with this crash in nickel prices, as they're calling it. I don't see it as a crash. I mean, we're at $7.16 a pound here, 20 cents down from last week. But if we look back a year, we are down 40%. And if we look back to February of 2022, when the London Metal Exchange was broken, basically, by the nickel contract, I think it was up to $22. And again, now we're at 7 Let me check my notes here for a second. Yes, we went all the way up on the weekly prices that we informally tabulate here, $21.87. So that was, of course, right after Russia invaded Ukraine. And so it is quite a fall. I mean, we're down 66% basically in the last year and 11 months. Let's call it two years. So a tricky trade, and we're getting stories here, and we're going to look at them today. BHP flags possible write-downs, Australia's Wailu shuttering the nickel mine, and a couple other stories here just on the nickel market itself. I mean, it's only been a week since we last talked, and all of this seems to be happening at once here. So a lot of drama in the nickel market, again, this time on the downside. And contrasting it with uranium here, to me, it just shows how difficult it is to invest in commodities particularly the metals. I mean, anybody, I would argue, that you talk to who has invested in the metals in the last 20 years has to tell you it is not easy. When it works, it works spectacularly. It's like crypto. It goes up 10x, 5x, 3x. You're in the hundreds of percents. So that is always the lure of investing in metals and miners, which, again, it's a very cyclical industry right? You know, there was uranium. I think that went from, if I remember correctly, from $7 to $117 or whatever it was, you know, in the first bull market, then getting completely depressed, bombed out, so to speak, going down again, maybe $20, $15 a pound. And here we are at $106 a pound for uranium. But ask any uranium investor, if there are any left that stayed in the trade, and you're not going to hear that it was easy. I mean, if you came in the last three years, you got lucky. But, I mean, from a fundamentals perspective, we've been hearing since Fukushima, and even before Fukushima, that, you know, uranium, there's not enough. And you would have had to have waited a decade. Now, what's interesting, had you waited a decade, It's interesting to see how the price performance would be, you know, versus, for example, the S&P 500. Because in some of these stocks, you probably would have, you know, 5 or 6x'd, maybe more, 10x, 20x, depending on how far you went on the risk curve. So to me, it's just an illustration of how hard this trade is. And I think we see the same thing in nickel, right? I mean, nickel, you know, two years ago, we're not going to have enough nickel. We were listening to Robert Friedland in London in November saying, like, you know, car companies are calling him 
and they're asking about their electric vehicle batteries and where the nickel is going to come from. And his answer is it doesn't exist. So again, you know, to somewhat invert the argument, maybe that's the opportunity in nickel right now. Again, not financial advice. I mean, who wants to give financial advice on this incredibly difficult sector here? But again, nickel at $7.17. I mean, look at lithium. You know, here we are down again, a new low here on, again, our informal weekly readings here at $13.27 per kilogram, down four cents. So another very difficult trade, cobalt, you know, $13.22. So our battery metals here are much celebrated battery metals not exactly doing what they were supposed to do. Like even silver, you could argue. I mean, we've been hearing for how long that there is not enough silver. Silver is at $22.48. Like we haven't even broken 25. And frankly, we're not even close to breaking 25. And gold, you know, still remains above 2000. Like what happened to silver? I thought this was like, you know, a massive trade that was supposed to happen here. And if we zoom out, it probably is. You know, one could argue maybe all of these metals we return here in a year. It may be a completely different story. So that being said, investing in the fundamentals in the metals is a very treacherous game. You know, to state the obvious here, as we begin our show here on January 23rd, pontificating on the situation here from an investment point of view. And there are so many interesting ways of looking at this industry. What's really fun about this episode is we have Paul from the Sirius Report, and we're going to get the 30,000-foot view of what's going on geopolitically. And what I was particularly happy with in this conversation is I get Paul to ground the conversation in resources at every turn. So it is quite interesting, and I felt like the conversation itself actually led to insights that, at least for me, I had never had before, such as this idea that, you know, maybe France is going through a similar situation as Germany in the sense that their price of uranium, 62% of France's energy comes from nuclear. And look at what's happening to the price of uranium. And don't forget what happened in Niger, which arguably with Arriva, the French nuclear energy company in there getting kicked out, as far as I understand, out of Niger after the coup, you know, that was their golden goose, one could argue. So you zoom out, and I had never thought about this from the French point of view. Again, we hear a lot about Germany's economy and how much it is suffering from the lack of cheap Russian energy, right? I mean, we hear a lot about this, the deindustrialization of Germany. But with uranium up above $106 here, with Niger off the table, as far as the French are concerned, with 62.6% of their energy coming from nuclear where does that leave France? Are they really in such a different situation? Perhaps they have stockpiles, but as long as this price stays high, I mean, are they looking at a tripling of their energy costs as well? 
you know, back of the envelope calculation here. Are they looking at their energy costs multiplying? You know, and I have heard, you know, little kind of comments that the French economy is not doing that well. They've been shuffling some people around there in the cabinet, from my understanding. So, uh, interesting situation here, a fascinating big picture discussion. I kept Paul down to just an hour, which is a record here. Usually it's like an hour and a half to two. For Paul and I being in discussion, it is a very concise discussion. We cover most of the world. Again, one of my main goals here, if not the top goal, is to give perspective. Otherwise, what is the point, really, of listening to a podcast? I am here to help give you perspective. Here are some stories you've never heard. Maybe you walk away from here a little richer in your understanding of what may or may not be going on. And one of the hardest parts of getting perspective is knowing where to start. And I thought where Paul started was very interesting, which was Ukraine, interestingly. So a fascinating discussion. The Middle East comes up, the Red Sea, Africa, Sahel, and more. So a wonderful episode for you today. And coming up on this week's CEO Spotlight, we have FM Global's Michael Beaumont, who talks about the risks that are inherent in mine sites and really what mining companies can do to address risk. And it's quite a fascinating, illuminating discussion there as well. All sorts of things that I never would have thought about come up, including how you know fires are one of the most common sources of damage at a mine site. And, you know, fire isn't the first thing I think about when I'm at a mine, you know, so very interesting discussion, also heavy equipment and more. So that is coming up right away. So thank you once again for joining us. We have a great show and a whole bunch of very interesting news stories, including what's going on in the nickel market, hot off the press. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host this podcast and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to FM Global's Michael Beaumont for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today for this week's CEO Spotlight, I'm very happy to welcome Michael Beaumont, Operations Vice President and Group Manager of Account Engineering at FM Global Australia and New Zealand. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adrian. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. For those that have never heard of FM Global, could you describe what FM Global is and what it does? Yeah, so FM Global is a specialty property insurer. We participate in the mining market, but also other markets. We're about a 200-year-old company, and we base our model around a mutual model. So we're owned by our policyholders, and we work with our policyholders to try and help them prevent loss at the same time as providing the risk transfer options that insurance provides. And we do this with engineers. So we have a group of engineers who go out and visit about 60,000 sites a year, collecting data, looking for ways to improve risk management practices. And in the mining space, we probably have close to 100 around the world that do that. And they're mostly in Australia and Canada. And they go and have specialty training, experience, knowledge in the industry, basically take our understanding through loss history and research 
and industry best practice and try and find the best possible risk management outcomes for our clients. They're a group of highly trained engineers in the various occupancies that they work in, and we collect a lot of loss information through the years as well. We also have a very large research body, research scientists, and a very large test facility in Rhode Island where we actually burn things and find out a lot of information about how things respond to various fire situations, equipment breakdown situations. Recently, in the last couple of years, we did some research on conveyors and we built a full-scale conveyor system in our research center and started setting rubber belts alike to find out how to protect the belt the best with the fire systems. So what are the main leading losses that are occurring in mining? You look at the top thing is we've got about 23% in that pure equipment breakdown, whether it's your electrical system failing or your mechanical breakdown, gear failure, motor failure, then your fire. And then we have one that's trended constantly, which is collapse, which I'd actually would put with equipment breakdown because it usually is something like the collapse of a large piece of balance equipment, like a stacker or a claimer or a, a shiploader or something like that. But the failures are really equipment breakdown. You're, you're not maintaining a, a good structural integrity program and things like that. Okay, excellent. And, you know, I have to say I'm a little surprised that that is insured in a sense. I would expect that, you know, in my sort of layman's view of things here, I would have thought, oh, well, if a big heavy equipment breaks down at a mining site, I would have to deal with that. But in fact, oftentimes these are insured is what you're saying. Yeah, the insurance policy is going to cover any of these machinery breakdown, the fire issues, and that's where that policy we have with the client indemnify them for loss, and it's it's part of their risk management process to decide what their appetite is and how much they need to transfer to another company like us as an insurance company. The interesting thing is, and we usually use like a, a tip of an iceberg thing, and and that's the the side of loss that isn't insured. And for miners, it's it's significant. So if you have a large fire, we'll pay for the conveyor system. We'll pay for the business interruption over the time period of rebuilding. But we can't recover market price. We can't indemnify them for reputation damage. There's so many other aspects in the value chain and mining that are impacted by big shock losses. Just no miner would really want to have them. And those aren't insurable. And there is some really interesting research, you know, tying good risk management practices back to things like market value and and and, uh, and share price volatility. Well, I was just thinking to myself, if you could insure the share price, Michael, what a business that would be. Uh, so <laughs> fascinating. I have to say, one of the big surprises as I looked over doing research on your company, I was quite surprised to see that fires were one of the biggest causes of losses for miners. It's as a, a segment, the probably the largest segment of losses is equipment breakdown. If you group together all the things that break down, but that's divided into mechanical and electrical. As a standalone category, FAR is about 21% of our loss history as we look at it over a 20-year period. I've also done that cut over a five-year period, and I, I look at this pretty much every year just to see what trends are there. And since I've been involved with the mining industry with FM for about 25 years, it's always been that 20 to 25%. If I look at the last five years, though, 
we're actually seeing an uptick in fire losses and is probably about 27% of our gross loss dollars paid out to fires in the mining space. It's kind of counterintuitive then, considering that, you know, oftentimes we're dealing with a bunch of rocks. Tell us, like, how can that be? Well, when you look around, it does seem counterintuitive because for the most part, other than coal, you're looking at a non-combustible product. You're looking at a lot of steel structures, a lot of metal, and a lot of heavy equipment. But when you start looking at that equipment and you start thinking about what you're doing in a combination circuit, your your sizing equipment needs to be made as a, largely made out of polyurethane, a lot of the sizing screens. The conveyor belts are 50 millimeters thick and they're solid rubber and they run for many, many meters and they burn extremely well. And then you've got things like linings on mills and you can have a, have a situation where you know, you're just doing some maintenance one day, someone gets in there with an oxy torch and a hot bolt lands in your sag mill and that fire, it can be absolutely devastating. And these losses tend to attract some property damage. Obviously, you're damaging the equipment, but it's the uh, impact of the business interruption that really makes the fire losses big because they tend to be very large. You're going to be recovering from them, you know, maybe two weeks, maybe two months or even longer to recover from these fires. So where is the money being lost? The biggest causes of the losses, and that's not just fire, when we look at our our losses, when we start breaking down the causes, we get to things like electrical arcs, you know, corrosion equipment breakdown is essentially something that really drives this. So whether you're looking at an equipment breakdown like a gear failure on a large mill or equipment breakdown could be just a seized bearing on a conveyor that then causes a fire, the equipment breakdown, this is something that most miners are very aware of, is what's really driving the losses. We do see a, a large incidence of hot work, you know, managing the use of oxy torches, welding around this equipment, a real need for awareness of where there can be combustible material where you're not expecting it, lined equipment and conveyor belts that are maybe many, many meters below where you're doing the work and things like that. Okay, very, very interesting. So what can mining companies do to be more resilient and prevent these losses from occurring? Well, it comes down to the good risk management practice. And and when we go with our clients and our engineers go out on site, they're looking at things from a systems approach or understanding that and working with the miners to find these areas where they can have a breakdown in, in process in the risk management side. And when we're looking at equipment, we look at a number of about seven categories, maintenance, operating conditions, environment, the working environment, the, the operators, their training, the age and history of the equipment, the safety devices that are in play and the contingency planning. And when we look through, and there's a lot of questions that go behind that, but if, if people pay attention to those seven things and really honestly assess how well they're doing in them, we find that that really can drive good risk management practice. Just as we uh, close here, what would you like people to know? Maybe there's miners, we have a lot of exploration companies as well as uh, executives from larger mining companies listen. You're from the more the engineering side of the business. So what would you like them to know as uh, just some final thoughts here that maybe we haven't discussed yet? Well, our company operates on a principle of 
we believe that the majority of all loss is preventable. So whilst we get to witness all this loss history and respond to it, most of these things can be stopped or mitigated through contingency planning, through through sparing, things like that. I would say that you know, no matter what the challenges are in your operation, if you apply good risk management processes, you can get to a better place and you can avoid these losses. We actually harness a lot of this data. We've been using a lot of predictive analytic models with our own clients and being able to focus their efforts. So my message would really be, you know, pay attention to the good risk management processes because it's going to pay off. Uh, and anybody who's had a, a, a large loss in, in any industry, but mining especially, knows that they never want to go through a second one. Great words to leave on. Michael Beaumont, Operations Vice President and Group Manager of Account Engineering at FM Global Australia and New Zealand. Thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thanks, Adrian. And thank you once again to FM Global for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website, nickel price crash seen extending Indonesia's grip on supply. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. A prolonged slump in nickel prices is stress testing producers worldwide, raising the prospect of sweeping mine closures that will deepen Indonesia's dominance of global supply. The metal used in stainless steel and electric vehicle batteries is down more than 40% from a year ago amid a growing global glut. That's piling pressure on higher cost operations and could pose the greatest risk to new projects outside Indonesia. So far, the main casualties are in Australia. On Monday, billionaire Andrew Forrest nickel producer Wailu Metals said it's shutting down mines, and BHP Group said it's partly closing a processing plant. BHP has warned last week on prospects for its nickel business while First Quantum Minerals suspended a mine. So that is three mines. But production in Indonesia, which already accounts for half of global supply, may prove more resistant to output cuts. The Southeast Asian nation has emerged as a global nickel hub after billions of dollars of investment in efficient plants that benefits from inexpensive labor, cheap power, and readily available raw materials. And we have a quote from Alan Ray Restoro, analyst at Bloomberg NEF. Quote, Indonesian projects are more flexible in absorbing the impacts of lower nickel prices. End quote. That means overall global supply will keep rising despite output curbs elsewhere. He said, you know, I started this show out comparing nickel and uranium of all metals, but it's quite similar when you think of what they're saying here that we're still going to have a glut because Indonesia is going to keep producing. I mean, for the uranium investors out there, doesn't that remind you of Kazakhstan after the bursting of the first uranium bubble in that bull market 15 years ago? You know, Kazakhstan was oversupplying the market. Now it's Indonesia. Another take on this is, are we going to have to wait 10 years for nickel to really go somewhere? The fundamentals would say unlikely, but I think that's what the fundamentals were saying with uranium 10 years ago. So the flood of new supply from Indonesia in the past two years has overwhelmed demand at a time when metals markets are under pressure from a sputtering global economy. For nickel, softer demand growth from the EV sector is also a headwind, and prices have recently traded near $16,000 a ton, close to their lowest level since 2021. Malay Resources' Ave Buri mine in Tasmania and a project by IGO are also at risk, according to Bloomberg NEF. Calls to the two firms were not immediately answered. 
Parts of BHP's Kambalda concentrator will be suspended from June because they can no longer receive ore supply from Wailu's halted mines, BHP said. So those two stories are actually interlinked. The world's biggest miner is reviewing its Nickel West business, referring to BHP, and last week warned it may be forced to write down the value of the assets. First Quantum said it would suspend its Ravensthorpe Nickel facility in Western Australia and cut a third of its workforce. And again, let's not forget, it is not easy to get mining talent these days, so that is no small matter. Citigroup sees Nickel falling to $15,500 a ton. Right now, again, it's around $16,000. And so this is Citigroup sees this happening in the next three months. The bank recently slashed its forecast for average prices this quarter to $16,000 a ton from $18,000 a ton. To be sure, Indonesia has its own uncertainties. A December accident that killed 21 people has triggered calls in the country for tighter regulation of the nickel industry ahead of a presidential election next month. One of the three candidates to become vice president criticized how the incumbent government has managed the sector during a televised debate on Sunday. The announcements by BHP and First Quantum add to other signs of stress. Glencore said in September that it will only keep funding the struggling Kanyambo nickel mine until next month. Nickel plants in the French territory of New Caledonia are seen at risk of closure, the French government said last year. And here's a quote from Nikhil Shah, principal analyst for base metals at CRU Group. Quote, a lot of supply is still coming from Indonesia, and we will need nickel prices to go lower to constrain supply growth in Indonesia. So really saying the way we're going to reduce supply growth in Indonesia, again, this glut out of Indonesia is with lower nickel prices. And finally here, nickel's woes reflect the dynamics of other battery materials markets, which have seen prices sink after surprisingly strong growth in supply. Demand for nickel and cobalt have suffered too as EV makers adopt types of batteries that don't use either of them. So a lot is going on here. You know, I think one of the culprits that is not being discussed here is the very expensive prices that are on new cars right now, which I think is leading to people not buying as many cars, especially the expensive EV cars. And therefore, there's also, I think, you know, you hear about how there are a lot of electric cars on the lots. To me, that's anecdotal. I haven't seen it for myself. I haven't seen the numbers, but you do hear of that. So it does make you wonder how much the car industry is involved. And again, they're talking about different kinds of batteries that don't even use nickel or cobalt. So all sorts of interesting developments here. According to Jason Sapwar, senior analyst at S&P Global Commodity Insights, quote, we expect nickel prices to remain subdued this year. So a lot of people were expecting a, you know, metals bull market in 2024, not according to S&P Global Commodity Insights. Now, let's take a look at this next story here, a column from Reuters on mining.com, surging exchange stocks piled a pressure on nickel. So let's look now from the other perspective, not the producer, but the holder of the inventory here with the LME. Nickel was the worst performer among the London Metal Exchange's base metals last year by some margin as the market priced in a wave of new Indonesian supply. This is just like the Kazakhstan story, I feel, you know, 12 years ago or whenever that was with the uranium market. Indonesia's mine production rose by 29% year on year. In the first 10 months of 2023, according to the International Nickel Study Group, 
Nickel demand is rising fast thanks to its use in electric vehicle batteries, but nowhere near the pace of supply growth. Until recently, the growing supply surplus was confined to intermediate products such as ferro-nickel and matte, rather than high-purity refined metal that trades on the LME and the Shanghai Futures Exchange. That is changing as stocks rise on both exchanges, narrowing the pricing gap between refined metal and other forms of nickel. So there were actually low LME stocks of nickel last year until the fourth quarter, when LME registered inventory had grown rapidly from 37,000 tons to 69,000 tons. So the inventory on the LME almost doubled in the fourth quarter of last year based on Indonesia's rapid expansion based on Indonesia's exports. A significant driver of that has been the amount of Russian metal arriving in the LME system. So this is another, you know, interesting aspect of this story. Warranted stocks of Russian nickel increased from 7,000 tons at the end of August to 17,000 tons at the end of December, likely reflecting a combination of weaker demand and self-sanctioning by Western users. Right, and this is another item we were commenting on last week, which was this rising share of the metal at the LME being of Russian origin. Again, if you're a, you know, a Western manufacturer and you have the choice between Russian and non-Russian, you'll probably, especially if you're in England where you're not even allowed to buy Russian metal, uh, you know, why would you buy the Russian metal if it's the same price? And just one last point on this nickel story, but the real game changer is the rising tonnage of Chinese metal in the LME storage system. There was no warranted Chinese-branded nickel at all as recently as August. By the end of December, there were 6,500 tons. That's down to the Chinese build-out of capacity to convert Indonesia's stream of intermediate products into refined metal that is LME deliverable. Macquarie Bank estimates that 250,000 tons of annual conversion capacity will be online by the end of this year. You know what it shows when you take a step back from this market story? of the last year, it shows that if China needs the nickel, they can get it. That's what it shows me. It shows that, hey, we can make so much of this stuff, we can turn this into a glut. Now, let's not forget, as we've observed many times, as many of you know, the Chinese playbook as well. I mean, what did they do with rare earths? They oversupplied the market, and what happened? The Western mines of rare earths, you know, 15, 20 years ago, shut down. Is the same thing happening now? I don't know. But if you abstract what is happening, which is larger Chinese sourced supply and Western mines shutting down, again, we are seeing a not dissimilar story, you know, worth noting. And finally, it's not only the LME that has seen more Chinese metal turn up. Shanghai Futures Exchange inventory, which is highly dependent on Chinese nickel brands, hit a multi-year low of only 560 tons at the end of May 2023, Stocks have since mushroomed to 14,000 tons, so it was only 560 tons in May of last year, and now it is almost, you know, 25 times the amount on the exchange. So they hit quite a low of 560 tons, now they have 14,000 tons at the Shanghai Futures Exchange. So one would think this is good for inflation. A couple of quotes here. From the operators, also known as the miners, Australia's panoramic resources went into voluntary administration in December. 
Its administration said on January 8th that operations at the Savannah Nickel Project would be suspended because, quote, the prospect of achieving a near-term turnaround of operations and finances is low, end quote. And we also mentioned First Quantum in the previous story, which is cutting jobs at Ravensthorpe Mine in Australia because of, quote unquote, significant downturn in prices. And we have a quote from BHP's Jessica Farrell, who is president of the company's Nickel West division, who said, quote, we are working hard to remain globally competitive in a very tough operating environment. And finally here, the problem is that there is no sign of the Indonesian nickel juggernaut coming to a halt anytime soon. Indeed, Macquarie analysts note that, quote, surpluses remain our base forecast for the overall nickel market all the way out to 2027, most likely in all main product categories, end quote. As more of that surplus is transformed into refined metal, exchange stocks will rise further, piling even more pressure on the nickel price. So fascinating developments there out of and we have like three other stories here but they're basically you know already been discussed bhp flags possible write downs at nickel unit australian tycoon forest shuts nickel mines after price crash nickel prices keep slumping even as mines close bloomberg news Uh, quite something now continuing on just to wrap up here i mean it was almost all nickel but just to see what else is going on here a couple of headlines here. Serbia wants talks with Rio Tinto over Jadar Lithium Project, Reuters via mining.com. And of course, Belgrade revoked licenses for Rio's $2.4 billion Jadar Lithium Project in Western Serbia in January 2022 after massive environmental protests. Scrolling down a bit, the president said, quote, we are facing the question of whether the company will file a lawsuit against us or not. I asked them not to take measures to protect their interests. So isn't that interesting, analogous to a certain degree to First Quantum in Panama. Also, just a headline here, Canada gives mineral-rich Arctic region of Nunavut control over its resources. Reuters via mining.com, Canada on Thursday formally gave the giant Arctic territory of Nunavut control over its reserves of gold, diamonds, iron, cobalt, and rare earth metals, a move that could boost exploration and development. So maybe this will help speed up the permitting process. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market for context. And the U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 4.12%. That is 0.11% higher than last week. So bond yields continue to climb. Interestingly, the U.K. 10-year gilt is yielding 3.95%. That is 0.16% higher than last week. And the Italy 10-year bond is yielding 3.87%. That is 0.07% higher than last week. So so bond yields rising, turning to precious metals. Gold is at $2,029.30 per ounce. That is $15 lower than last week, but still above $2,000, but just barely there. Silver is at $22.48 per ounce. That is 77 cents lower than last week. Platinum is at $894.18 per ounce. That is $19 lower than last week. 
and palladium is at $935.52 per ounce. That is $36 lower than last week. And right now the spread between platinum at $894 and palladium at $935 is only $41, interestingly. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.75 per pound. That is three cents lower than last week. Iron ore is $2 lower at $135.42 per metric ton. Aluminum is also lower at $0.98 cents per pound. That is $0.02 cents lower than last week. Lead is at $0.95 cents per pound. That is a penny lower than last week. And nickel is at $7.17 per pound. That is $0.13 cents lower than last week. Tin is higher. We do have an anomaly here at $11.48 per pound. That is $0.31 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.22 per pound. Lithium is $0.04 cents lower at $13.27 per kilogram. Uranium also an anomaly and big time here at $106 per pound, blasting through $100 here. And that is $13.50 higher than last week. And zinc is $0.04 cents lower at $1.12 per pound. Overall, metals lower with very special exceptions being tin and especially uranium moving higher. And looking at, you know, nickel and lithium as really quite low, cobalt as well at $13.22 per pound. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Paul from the Sirius Report to get a comprehensive 30,000-foot view on what is happening in the world. And what's beautiful about this conversation is I get Paul to contextualize that discussion within the resource conversation. So it is a fascinating, very useful, I would say, conversation in terms of helping bring perspective. Paul shows us how he is processing this information. I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Paul from the Serious Report to the Northern Miner podcast. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on again, Adrian. It's always a pleasure. I think we have interesting discussion and i also i think you have a bit of a kind of looser format so it makes it more interesting for us as well and i think it stimulates a better discussion in the process it is a pleasure and a delight to have you back paul and i agree i am for the living breathing conversation here in this you know very challenged world you know i think people look at the news and there seems to be a fire in every direction here <laughs> So as someone that does look at the big picture of geopolitics and who has for, I mean, how long has your show been going, actually, Paul? The podcast, we started September 2016, and I did some bits with people, like some interviews, sort of 2015 onwards, middle of 2015 or so. Okay, so about eight or nine years you've been following mm -hmm. quite diligently the machinations, so to speak, of the world bringing your perspective to it, you know, a kind of comprehensive analysis of, I'd say, largely the strategy often that's involved in these kind of larger issues or lack of strategy in many cases. <laughs> so 
from your perspective, then, as you look at this, you know, arguably a confusing, you know, world where, you know, you could pick your battle that you want to focus on. How are you making sense of this? What is your big picture view here? Like what's kind of on your radar? How are you processing this information? Yeah, generally it's trying to look at, I mean, yes, you're right. You have to sometimes drill into detail, but at times you have to step back and look at it. You know, I've used that 30,000 foot analogy and I times did my podcast occasionally call on that because you do need to have that perspective. I mean, in a broad sense, there's some very obvious things. I mean, we don't need to go into too much detail, but Ukraine still is, is, is a war. It's still ongoing. The Russians are continuing to make more and more territorial gains. The Ukrainians are running out of everything. And the most regrettable thing is running out of military personnel. I'm now to the point that they're not conscripting women, but they're trying to get women to join. They're trying to get Ukrainians back from countries like Poland and serve them mobilization papers. And they've got 50, 60-year-olds trying to fight a war they, that they're not capable of fighting. And the West knows the reality of what the outcome is going to be, that Russia has already won the war. So they're trying to sell it as a strategic defeat, meaning, well, Russia didn't achieve its objectives, and they're not Russian objectives. They're the objectives the West is claiming Russia has to try and sell to us that Russia's had a strategic defeat, meaning they've actually won the war, but we're going to try and sell it this way because we told you Russia would lose the war. And, of course, that's clearly not the case. Now, I don't want to diminish that all loss of life is tragic, but I don't focus on, like some people do, well, today this happened and tomorrow that will happen, because for me it's pointless. The question now is, what is the future for Ukraine? I mean, and how much of Ukraine will end up being part of Russia? Is it going to also include Odessa and Nikolaev? So Russia basically controls the Black Sea. Will it include Kharkov? So there's this band that stretches all the way around from the north and the east to the south and the west. There's also the question that Russia basically said they don't have a problem with nations like Poland or Romania and Hungary wanting parts of Ukraine, which historically they believe should be part. So Lvov would be part of Poland. And they're going, well, Ukraine gets broken up into multiple pieces. We don't have a problem. If you want that, take it. And then there'd just be this rump state in the middle. I mean, Ukraine itself is economically finished, financially finished. It's a... In that respect, a third world nation, it's deeply corrupt and future Zelensky is very uncertain now. And there's a lot of noises coming out where people are going, he's just an authoritarian dictator. I mean, some quite prominent people publicly have said this now. So it's still an ongoing problem because the, the fallout will be enormously difficult for the United States and its allies to try and sell to the West and increasing in the West to understand the reality. So... That's a sort of major sort of 30,000 foot view of that. And then we obviously have to come on to the whole question of Israel and Hamas. And we made the point at the outset that there was all this conspiracy nonsense that somehow it was all engineered so the United States could go to war with Iran. And I said at the point, I'm sorry, it's absolute nonsense. And here we are 13, 14 weeks. 15 weeks later, it is nonsense. The US does not want to go to war with Iran because the consequences would be devastating. I mean, the U.S. is not equipped to go to war with Iran. People think you park aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean, but somehow they pose the threat. In what capacity? I mean, Iran has hypersonics. It can just, in 10 minutes, it could wipe out the entire fleet. The U.S. knows this. 
that the, the fleet was put there not to go to war with Iran. It was to deter the likes of Hezbollah, you know, opening a second, third front in this war. So it wasn't just a war between Israel and Hamas. I mean, and people, of course, I mean, go to me, well, you're always very critical of the U.S. Yes, I am, by and large. But this is a very different situation. The U.S. will have to, by definition, continue to arm the Israelis. It will have to sit there and, and not publicly criticize them for the Gaza offensive, which is clearly there's war crimes and genocide going on. People can decide to defend the Israeli conduct however they want, but, but that's absolutely clear that that's the case. But the U.S., on the other hand, doesn't want an escalation. It doesn't want a second, third, fourth front because it knows that the, the whole of the Middle East could end up in, in a serious war. And it also knows it no longer has the support of the Saudis and the Qataris and the UAE like it once did because the U.S. is a diminishing global power, as we know, and hence why the Middle Eastern countries adopting multipolarity. They're very supportive of Russia and China, and they've, the Saudis have had reproached with the Iranians, et cetera, et cetera, all the things we've discussed previously. Problem is, there is a risk of this confrontation escalating. Israel wants it to happen because it thinks then the U.S. will be forced to enter it militarily, which is a big gamble on their behalf. There's no, absolutely no guarantee that would happen. The situation in Gaza itself, of course, there's always propaganda on all sides, but the reality is the Israelis are struggling to defeat Hamas. The U.S. is telling them, look, the optics are horrendous. You are going to have to de-escalate the intensity of, of the war because they're getting huge backlash, not just from the Middle East or West Asia, but also European allies are going, we can't defend this war anymore. It's indefensible. And this is why you hear statements even coming out from the UN or EU officials. I mean, once I think Burrell came, I think it was Burrell, came out the other day and went, well, we're going to have to admit that the origins of Hamas was the Israelis funded it. And this is way back, and people still think they fund it now. No, they don't. This, we're talking about the Arafat days. This is a long time ago. But, you know, the, the, they're getting to the point where the optics are so bad and more and more people are seeing reality. And they had some non-binding EU votes about, you know, needing to have a uh, ceasefire to prevent the war. And EU countries are voting for it. On mass, okay, there are some exceptions and there are abstentions. Well, the abstentions are basically nations like Germany going, well, we can't vote for this, but we actually agree with it. We just, you know, it's just political nonsense. So how long does this war carry on? And, you know, the problem is the U.S. is caught between a rock and a hard place because the Israeli lobby largely controls Congress and all these people in Congress going, well, if I'm not seen to be supportive of Israel, then my donors will disappear and et cetera, et cetera. And however else Congress is financed in all the corrupt ways that it is. So they're just self-preservation. But the U.S. looks at this and going, well, we can't have this escalating. And this is why, you know, we have the situation with the Houthis, who then started attacking U.S. ships, and uh, whether they were civilian or military. And the U.S. tried to form this alliance of countries. We're going to stick it to the Houthis. And they all went, no, we're not doing it. Push came to pull. They all backed off and went, we don't want to get involved. The Netherlands sent one naval officer. And then, of course, they had the strikes on the Houthis, and the U.S. was going, it's an international response, and it wasn't. 
It was basically the US. No one else was involved. The UK wants to get dragged in to make it look like it's tough on the world stage because Sunak's about to suffer probably the most humiliating election defeat for the Conservative in history, even worse than the Blair era in 97. So this is all about trying to look tough. So somehow British people will think, oh, I think I'll vote for Sunak because he's tough on on terrorism or whatever people want to perceive Hamas to be or the Houthis or whoever. But I mean, it's just grandstanding nonsense. There was no international coalition. No one wants to get involved because they know what the ramifications will be. And the problem is, though, if you close the Red Sea, then you're going to see inflationary problems because traffic traveling through there is going to, the cost will exponentially rise because of the risk, insurance. Also, a lot of shipments are now having to go via South Africa. So you're going to substantially increase the shipping cost. A lot of oil and gas, particularly gas is non-existent going through the Red Sea now, and oil's diminished by about 50%, and it's probably likely to rise. This is going to have huge economic problems, particularly for Europe. Ironically, <laughs> Europe's always like the kind of, they're not even the meat in the sandwich. They're like, you know, whenever there's a problem, they're, they're just beaten with this, with this proverbial stick repeatedly. Yeah. Like what happened in Ukraine with sanctions, the same problem. This is a very different situation. We're starting to see more and more public acknowledgement where people are going, we can't support this. And the U.S. knows that whilst on the one hand, and people don't seem to grasp that, of course, they're going to support Israel, but it doesn't mean they want an escalation. People think in very binary terms that this means this, and it doesn't. It's a very complicated, very fluid situation. It's like within Israel. Yeah, Netanyahu doesn't want a two-state solution. He wants the war to carry on until you know, Hamas is gone, and arguably all the Palestinians leave Gaza and, in fact, leave the West Bank. They all just go go to some other country like Egypt, and then we control all of Israel. But there are people inside Israel who profusely disagree with this and know that it's not the answer. And, of course, Israel is suffering huge isolation in the process, and the U.S. is trying to concoct some kind of peace agreement and it's falling on deaf ears. And people go, well, that's all optics. Well, it is partly, but it isn't. The U.S. needs this situation in the Middle East like a hole in the head because it's still trying to deal with Ukraine. It's trying to deal with with the fact of the problems now in the Middle East. There's a whole issue with China and Taiwan, which for now is like it's not a problem anymore because the U.S. can only focus on one thing, not can't multitask. And then there's domestically, What's going on with the U.S. elections is Trump. I mean, Trump's almost certainly going to be the Republican nominee. And then, and in reality, he's going to destroy, he's going to trounce uh, Biden in an election. Almost certain. So now they're panicking, going, well, well, what can we do about this? Because they don't want Trump back in office. Because, I mean, as much as he promised much in his four years previously and delivered very little for a whole bunch of reasons, they're now fearful. Well, maybe this time he actually will deliver something. And the U.S. has all the internal problems with de-dollarization and its waning influence in the world and its huge economic financial problems. So the timing of what's happened in the Middle East with Hamas is just disastrous for the U.S. And this is the thing people aren't grasping particularly well, and they're buying into all these very binary thinking conspiracy ideas that, you know, there's, there's all part of a grander plan, and Hamas only did this because... And the Israelis let him, them do it deliberately, which they didn't. 
they got caught with their pants down because they were arrogant and ignorant and didn't think Hamas would pose any threat. And of course, they made the fatal mistake of going, well, politically, we have no choice but to go in tough and hard. You know, the flip side to this is Netanyahu is fighting for his political future because, you know, without this war, effectively, the argument is, you know, he's already deeply unpopular because the people believe, how did he let this happen in the first place? And if he's out of office, then there's all this pending trial and Hey, you're innocent until proven guilty, but you know he's got the cover of, of being the prime minister, and that you know, is is basically why he wants this to carry on, and has no intention of wanting this to end because he's just trying to look after his own interests, despite the, the the obvious broader ramifications. and And you could talk for hours and hours about this, but that's broad basically what's going on there. As I said, with China and Taiwan, there's nothing really happening. In fact, the U.S. is almost trying to be conciliatory towards China because it doesn't, even though China's got no intention of starting a war with Taiwan, they think, well, we look weak, so maybe China will do it now. And if China opens up a front there, we can't. We, what are they going to do? Move everything out to the Middle East and stick them in Taiwan? I mean, it's not going to happen. So they're deeply fearful. They're trying to pacify the Chinese because they can't open up multiple fronts. And they're also worried about North Korea because North Korea knows the US is weak and vulnerable. So they're kind of flexing their muscles in a way just to sharpen minds in, in Washington, you know, because they know, obviously, the North Koreans have the support of the Chinese and the Russians. That's This is a statement of the The fact it's not conjecture. So the US has multiple problems to worry about. And then, of course, there's all the broader financial problems in the West and their economies are in serious contraction and their deeper political worries that populist governments can come into power. Okay, the Netherlands is undecided. There's no real government at this point, but Germany is a big concern because the AFD is increasingly gaining popularity and there was some mutterings about maybe we should try and ban the AFD as though you know that's going to carry any water in, in reality. But the point is it shows the failure because they're worried about populist governments going, let's leave the EU, let's leave NATO, and let's have rapprochement with Russia. So this is why we have all this sudden escalation in nonsensical NATO talk about, well, we might go to war with Russia in 20 years. No, you won't. You're not going to go to war with Russia because that's World War Three, and no one wants World War Three. So this is just to keep justifying in the minds of the people. Well, if you vote for the AFD and they want reproachment in Russia, you can't trust Russia because they're the bogeyman. So let's convince you all they're the bogeyman so you won't vote for the AFD in Germany because they're going to want reproachment. They'll leave NATO. Oh, look, you can't leave NATO because then Germany's vulnerable to the Russians apparently invading somehow, which, of course, is just nonsense. Russia would never invade Germany never goes to war with Germany. It's just the propaganda to try and convince people. You have to stick with us. You trust us because we, we're looking after your best interests where people are going, we know you're not. We know you're just engineering wars and, and you just want to create this impression. Why? Because the military-industrial complex wants to continue to sell arms, even though, of course, it's basically running out of arms because of the Ukraine war. And also, a lot of these Western arms manufacturers that the Ukraine war has proven how useless these weapons are. And we've spoken about that previously and said that was always the case. And here we are. They are useless. All the weapons they've supplied have just been 
you know, it's like this is the next game changer, and every game changer has failed to change anything, except it's just accelerated the demise of the war from the West perspective and leading to the inevitable conclusion that however they want to spin it, Russia will win the war. Well, that's a fascinating, as you say, 30,000-foot view on the situation. So grounding it then within the resource discussion to a certain degree, if we can, Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me like if we look at Russia, they're, what, the largest supplier of commodities on the planet, one of the largest. You look at what's going on in the Middle East, you know, oil out there. I, I mean, Saudi Arabia seems to be playing both sides, but it seems to me when we kind of take a step back here, even looking at Africa, right, in the Sahel, it seems that the resources, even China with the lithium battery, EV battery supply chain, it seems like, you know, in this loose alliances that seem to be growing of kind of the West and Europe, what you sometimes call the Atlanticists, or let's call it capital W, the West on one side and the global South on the other. It seems like the global South has not all, you know, Canada has a lot of resources, but there is a significant amount of resource production that's coming from what I'd loosely call the global south. How do you see resources factoring into, say, you know, Russia winning the war in Ukraine, the issues with Taiwan, the Middle East? Uh, how do you see resources factoring into this very large, big picture discussion? It's a great question. And actually, we can integrate this really nicely, because if you look at what's happened with the Ukraine war, I mean, the West perspective is, we'll crush Russia in weeks, you know, its economy will collapse, the financial system will collapse, and Putin will be gone, and then it'll all be business as usual, and multipolarity will be dead because China won't do it on its own. Of course, what they fail to understand is, yes, Russia has an enormous resource base. So it was always has access. I mean, it's not going to charge itself, you know, sort of like spot price for energy. It produces energy dirt cheap, so it's great for the Russian economy. It was great for the Russian war effort. They have food security. They've actually rotated a lot of the internal markets, so they're becoming totally independent of the West, and they produce a lot more goods domestically, but they have access to this enormous resource base, which means they can fight this war for, for five more years, ten more years, easily. The West couldn't fight the war for another ten minutes, and... So, yeah, they have this enormous resource base and they've hardly scratched the surface in terms of the resources that they, uh, that they have. Probably 65, 70% of their resource base is still in the ground and has been explored. And this isn't just oil and gas. People think Russia's economy depends on oil and gas. Increasingly, absolutely not. It, it's rotating its economy. It's not only changed its internal market where it produces a lot more goods, but also, of course, it's now developing relations increasingly with the global south, where, you know, well, we want your energy, and in return, you'll give us these resources, or, you know, manufactured goods, although, of course, that's changing, as I said, because Russia's manufacturing a lot more goods internally, because it uh, because it intelligently understands that that's the way forward for them. But in a broader sense, China's producing more energy now, it keeps finding, you know, I think recently it's announced a discovery of a million tons of lithium in a mine. I think it was tons. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was. 
And, you know, this is kind of the future where the global south is going. We have all the resources. I mean, you make a point about the Sahel region in Africa, and it's a great example where we had colonialism for hundreds of years. Then we had neocolonialism where Western nations like the French were just exploiting the resources, giving you know crumbs to the African nations and, and taking all the profit from resource extraction. Now they're kicking the West out, they're kicking the Americans out, the French and whoever else. And they're going to the Russians, the Chinese. We have all these resources. We'd like your expertise and your investment. It's a win-win, and now the African nations can get a lot more sort of bang for their buck, so to speak. They they will be able to make huge amounts more revenue from their resources. They're going to have internal markets developed so they can produce resources and take those resources and produce finished goods, which they can then sell to the world. So it's it's hugely beneficial, and this is why the future is about resources. And you're absolutely right. The West is an entirely devoid of resources. Canada is a good example of that. But when you look at the, 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 the more global picture, the global south has everything it needs. And if the countries like in Africa and other parts of the world are able to, to in inverted commas, exploit their own resources for their own benefit, and yeah, it's win-win. Of course, the Chinese and the Russians benefit as well. No one's that, but instead of getting a cent on the dollar, and they now get 70 cents on the dollar, what they produce, and the Russians, the Chinese get 30%, and everyone's very happy. And that's the big mind shift that's happening, or the whole mindset is changing. And it is the future, it's about resources, because technologically, whether people like new technology or not, that there's a whole conspiracy nonsense about that. I mean, yeah, there are some reservations about things for sure, but the future is about technology, and you're going to need resources to make that technology. And the West, you know, as, as Germany is sadly finding out, without the access to cheap Russian energy, it can buy energy from three, four, five, whatever times the cost elsewhere. But in the process, it's deindustrializing. And now it's trying to go, well, we want this new technology. We want to encourage investment. I literally have to pay sweeteners or you know, to, to get businesses to come and invest. Go, well, if you build a plant, we'll give you these massive subsidies to come and build plants. And what are they going to have to do? Subsidize the prices as well, because here's the point. They can manufacture things, but if it still comes back, they still have expensive energy. So if it costs three, four times, five times to make a widget, so to speak, in Germany, and you can buy those widgets from the Africans Chinese, the Russians, or whoever else, the Iranians, whatever, you're going to go and buy the widgets from them. And what do they do? Make the widgets for their domestic market? Well, that's price inflation. You're never going to get rid of the inflationary cost because if your widget costs five times as much and then you sell it into the market domestically, well, that means whatever that widget's used for is going to cost five times more. So this is not the way forward. So it is the future. It's about access to resources. And the, the point is, if nations can also go, well, we have a thriving domestic market for whatever resource, then we can start to price that resource in local currency. Maybe in the future, we're part of the BRICS and we price these currencies in a BRICS currency. And we all sell it to each other. And we have our control of our own markets. It's the price is not dependent on the West trying to manipulate the price, be it hike the price or smash the price. 
as they've been trying to do with oil. I mean, look at oil. Oil's a great example. Given everything that's been going on in West Asia, oil should be over $100. And it's not because the West constantly trying to smash it. Why? Because the US wants to buy cheap oil and, and keep the price down, which is trying to beat up OPEC and OPEC Plus, which includes Russia, of course. Turn around and said to them, go away. I'm not interested. You don't, you don't figure in our thinking. We'll do what we want, which is in our interest and not yours. So the consequence of all this is, yeah, it's very much he who has the resources or whoever nations have the resources in the global south have way more resources. And they have the, the, the thriving vertical markets. They have the markets where there is huge growth potential, whereas we in the West are, as we know, have reached saturation through, through because of inflationary problems, because of irresponsible monetary policy with QE, zero interest rate policy, fiscal policy. We've reached the end of the line. We're now having to subsidize everything just to stay alive and in inverted commas, and that's unsustainable. As the Netherlands are now admitting, well, we can't have all these subsidies anymore. But if we stop that, we're going to have millions of people rioting. And, and if you remove the subsidies on mortgages in the Netherlands, millions of people wouldn't be able to afford to live. But you can't, it's not sustainable. So we've reached the point where an inflection point where nothing's sustainable. The global south has all this vertical growth room for the next 50, 100 years, whatever it might be. And therefore, that's where the future is. And, and, and if you have investment, they don't want investment from the West because they don't trust the West. So they want investment from friendly nations who won't try and screw them out. And therefore, you know, here's the point. If you're going to have resources like in Africa and you want to extract those resources and, and add value by producing goods, you're going to need roads and railways and bridges and dams and all these things. Who's going to finance that? The Chinese. Chinese come in and go, we'll build all the infrastructure for you. And in return, this is, this is you know, this is what we get in return from this investment. And everyone's very happy with this. Whereas the West, what can we produce anymore? How are we going to be economically, financially viable, even if we have access to resources, which increasingly we don't, and we're highly vulnerable to, for example, closing the Red Sea, or saying, I want to get the Houthis are going, Russia, China, all your vessels can go straight through, no problem, the United States and the UK, well, no, sorry, you're, you're a target. Okay, well, we're not going to go through the Red Sea, we'll have to go around, as we said, South Africa. But these, this is the problem we're facing. And we need to start to accept the fact. We, we just need to stop trying to create confrontation in the world, stop trying to have a war, start to build trust. And there's an interesting dynamic actually worth mentioning with regards to the French who've been effectively kicked out of the Sahel region. They actually, the, the French ambassador to Russia actually went to the Russians and went, would you be interested in developing some joint projects with us, the French, in that region to improve our, you know, the optics and our credibility and trust in us? Because they're basically being kicked out. Of course, the Russians won't get lost. Go away. We don't, we don't trust you. We're not going to tell the Africans to trust you because you're working with us. And meanwhile, you're still sanctioning us uh, with respect to Ukraine and you're making all these outrageous statements. But that's the desperation. And the French, without access to all this cheap resources, they're going to have to get the resources at infinitely greater cost, which creates inflate price inflation. And it's unsustainable. The West has reached the end of the line. There's no growth. 
saturated the debt market, we've saturated people's salaries, you can't pay them anymore. But then in the next breath, we're going, well, we're going to have to pay more for everything. In the long term, that creates huge price inflation. People want higher wages that we can't afford to pay them. And therefore, we destroy the productivity capability anyway. And offering anybody subsidies to come and build a factory in your country is not the answer. In fact, you're just deceiving yourself that you know, we we face the end of the line. We have to completely rethink, completely remodel our financial system and realize we are then going to be have to be subservient in inverted commas to the global south and those nations and go, okay, what can, how can we build trust with you? How can we work with you? We're going to have to rethink our whole strategy and and it is all revolves around resources because resources have never been more important now than at any point i would argue even going back to the industrial revolution because yeah you need your resources but we've exhausted a whole bunch of resources since that time it's a very different situation now and this applies to everything whether it's food whether you know it could be you know, oil and gas, it could be renewables, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. And it can relate to, to copper, it can relate to steel production, iron or everything. There is a need for resources and it's diminishing in the world. Well, from the West perspective, but go to China, it keeps discovering new resources and so do the Russians. And there's enormous resource potential in the Arctic region where Russia has control. And no, so instead of the West going, hang on, we need to rethink our strategy. They just keep doubling down. And, but privately, you can see the fears written all over their faces. And they know the writing's on the wall. They know the world's changing. But the problem is, instead of accepting reality, they're just making things infinitely worse. And the resource war, in inverted commas, is eloquently highlighted by the very rapid demise of Germany, not least because. They turn their back on cheap Russian energy. And if the AFD sells the line, we're going to restore Nord Stream 1 and 2, reproach them with the Russians. We're going to work out our differences. We're going to leave NATO so we don't spend tens and hundreds of billions of euros buying pointless weapons to defend ourselves against a nation who will never invade us or attack us. And by the way, we're leaving the European Union because it's pointless, it's autocratic, and that's being polite and the masses vote for it, you know, that's a big selling point. And uh, because they're giving Germany then the chance to go cheap energy, we can then become a manufacturing base again. Because Germany has great potential to be a, a wonderful manufacturing base. But it has to divorce itself from the idiotic policy decision of the Atlanticists, which is a great description. It has, since particularly the Ukraine war, is destroying Germany in the process and you know, seemingly incapable of understanding that's precisely what they're doing, which is why people go, it must be deliberate. No, be far more concerned it's not deliberate. The exact opposite. There's no adjective to describe how idiotic these clowns are with their ridiculous ideas that somehow this is the future and not understanding, well, if energy costs a lot more, what does that mean for us? They can't even comprehend simple things like that. Well, you know, you speaking about this, say, especially with the Sahel and Russia and the French ambassador asking if they can collaborate. And of course, from Russia's point of view, why would they even want to collaborate at all? And I don't know if you saw that story. I think it was early December 
where Burkina Faso decided they were going to make their own own gold refinery, and it was the mm-hmm. Russians. The Russians were going to help them. And mm-hmm. what it speaks to to me is to this idea that resources from the Russian and I'd argue the Chinese perspective as a kind of, if we we're to loosely call it an axis of sorts, uh, in mm-hmm. you know con- contradistinction to the Americans. It seems to be that resources are really front and center of their strategy here. And I think in that small story in Burkina Faso, where you see, to me, that was an extremely significant story. It's like, look at what Russia's doing. Like it reveals they're saying, process your resources yourself and we're going to help you do it. You know, and as mm-hmm. a larger, and, and I think the story that the Russians and the Chinese tell themselves, as well as probably their allies, is. This is a decolonization drive. This is the, you know, we're just trying to uh, get the yoke off of you, which is a very seductive narrative. And resources is how we're going to do it from the strategic point of view. What do you think of that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why you make a great point with the gold refinery. But let's look at this historically. What would have happened is no investment from the West or very little or as much as was needed. I mean, that's just. Do some simple maths. If going forward, Burkina Faso can sell an ounce of gold, okay, excluding production costs, but it can sell an ounce of gold for $2,000 an ounce, for argument's sake. And maybe it costs them $1,000 an ounce or it costs them to produce an ounce. I'm just plucking figures. It might be cheaper. It could be a bit more expensive. But, you know, for argument's sake, they can make $1,000 an ounce profit. Previously, because of the neo-colonial situation, they were maybe making $50 an ounce. I mean, it's a no-brainer for them because here's the thing, they can start to reap the benefits of their own resource capability. That improves the the whole situation of the economy of uh, African nations. And, you know, it's it's an enticing model when African nations go, well, here's the thing, we can, can exploit our own resources. It's hugely beneficial to our own economy, our own financial system. And here's the the nice kicker with this. They're all signing military cooperation agreements with the Russians because the Russians will come in and go, we'll protect you. We'll put forces in. So because Burkina Faso, I think every week there's an coup attempt to try and remove the leadership, instigated by the West, of course. So the argument is we'll provide you the security, the muscle to protect you as a nation. And you can begin to export your resources and therefore you can grow your economy and then you know the whole region becomes vibrant and then they can all work with each other and and develop the infrastructure and you know and it it, it becomes that they have the the African continent can have its own enormous internal market which will be not will be the in the sense of de dollarized they will have its own payment system. And they already have these things in development and they have their own ecosystem. Yeah, they can, of course, they can sell to the rest of the world, but they can integrate into whatever organizations they want to, as well as having that big, huge internal market. I mean, it's just a no brainer. And the other thing is, if you trade in local currencies, they can smash your currency against the dollar. But no one cares because all the currencies get smashed against the dollar. This is an intentional move to try and force these nations back into the, the dollar-denominated world, and it's failing. And they go, well, we, we're not having price inflation now because we're pricing 
selling stuff to each other in local currencies. And people haven't grasped how important that is, why it's hugely significant and hugely beneficial to these countries. So, you know, they can finally look at this. This is why they're having the confidence to kick colonial powers out of countries like the French and saying, get lost, you're finished, go away. And, of course, the French are looking at this going, well, we've been screwing these nations over royally for for however long they've been doing it. And without them, we're screwed. So it has the beneficial effect for the African countries, but also the flip side of this is nations like France are in serious trouble because this is going to affect their economy. It's going to affect their budget because all the money they were creaming out of Africa, they're not making it. So then they have massive budget deficits because, again, the West's reached the end of the line. It cannot finance anything anymore. So it's it's a double whammy effect. It helps the global South nations enormously, but also the consequences for, for colonial powers is devastating. And rightly so. You know, it's about time. These, I mean, how do you describe them? There's no adjective. They're just kicked out of these countries, stop exploiting them. The West stops putting dictators in who are just sympathetic and to the West, allow the West to do whatever they like and don't give a damn. And I'm not one for advocating regime change, but a lot of these governments that have come in, military governments that have had coups and thrown Western sympathetic leaders out, you know, are actually looking far more better intentions towards a future for their people. And the West can do nothing. The U.S. cannot do anything about this. And because, you know, it's all well and good having a coup in one country to deal with one problematic nation. But if you have 20, 30 countries in, in Africa are all problematic, what are you going to do? Kick have regime change in every country? It's not going to work. So this is why increasingly all these coups don't work. And because the U.S. is stretched so, is so weak and vulnerable itself. And all these attempts to try and like the Ukraine war was all about trying to destroy multipolarity and de-dollarization. And it comes back to the point, they raised interest rates that have nothing to do with inflation. It was all to do with trying to force the world back onto the dollar. And it's failed. And they, they're sat there going, how the hell have we raised interest rates this high, crippled all these currencies in the emerging markets? And yet they're all managing to cope all right. They're managing to cope okay. Because they've de-dollarized. And they're working on markets where we don't interact. We don't sell this price. We negotiate with each other and, and therefore we smooth out the fact our currency has been intentionally destroyed against the dollar. And we've realized, hey, this is this is wonderfully beneficial to us. So your point absolutely with Burkina Faso and gold production and putting gold mining in and you know, and it's one thing if they sell just Dore, but they can they refine the gold, then they can use that gold and maybe other manufacturing processes because gold is used industrial as well, not the same way as silver, but it is. Then you have value-added production, which is great for their economy. So, you know, it's it's one of these staggering things. I've spent years telling people in African nations, this is how you need to do things. And finally, it's happening. And, you know, from their perspective, I mean, Africa in the next 10, 20, 30 years will become this hugely vibrant continent. I mean, it's a long process, but at some point, Africa for me will be the largest economies in the world. But, you know, it's, that's not a problem. China doesn't care about this. It's 
It's not a competition to be the biggest. It's about what benefits us as a nation state. How can we improve, you know, the worth of people? How do we sustain people economically, improve their livelihood? And it also comes back to this point. Everyone's going about, well, China's population decreased by two million. In a world of increasing automation, China doesn't need to grow its population. Economies are not going to be dependent on ever-increasing populations for more and more consumption, and that's the only way to grow your economy. Absolutely not. And in fact, you know, I'm not saying it should be the case, but if China's population was 20 30% less, it wouldn't reduce its economic output at all. This is just a statement of fact that we live in a world that's very different now, and having to have ever-growing populations isn't the answer. Okay, there are certain issues with population decreasing because the idea is those who've retired have to be paid by those who are working. But we're talking about a situation where we're going through this enormous revolution where in every country in the West, 50, 60% of jobs will cease to exist anyway. So what are these people going to do instead? These are enormous challenges. And the idea we need an ever-growing population to resolve our economic woes is not any more applicable. I'm not saying population shouldn't grow. I'm just saying it's not a prerequisite. So all this kind of focus of China's finished because its population is not exponentially growing is, is just deluded Western myth that's they're always desperate to believe China's failing. Rather like the way the stock market goes down, oh, China's failing. It'll be like China has a 5.2% economic growth in 2023. And they're talking about that, they're, they're collapsing and it's over. Because the, we're focused on financialization. China's focused on the real economy where you produce stuff and sell it and make a profit. And we don't think like that in the West at all. And that's why you know, it's that part of that delusional mindset that if our, if our stock market's at an all-time high, everything's great, which, of course, is a nonsense. Discussing, uh, you know, Africa and the Sahel, and I was thinking about uh, Niger and the uranium and how, as you were mentioning, France gets a lot of its resources and uranium from Niger. And I was thinking, you know, in its own way, it's kind of an analogous situation to the Russia-Germany problem, because now, like, uranium, last I checked, was in the high 90s, may have even broken $100 a pound, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden... You know, all of a sudden, you know, with France, I can't remember the numbers at 60 or 80 percent of their energy coming from nuclear power, their energy, uh, maybe they have huge stockpiles. I imagine they do of uranium. So maybe it's not urgent. Uh, But if uranium prices stay high, let's say for the next five or six years, their golden goose, so to speak, out of Niger has been cut off as far as I understand. I mean, they also face a similar issue with their energy that. Germany does, like maybe not at the same level, but it does seem like an analogous situation. Uh, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you may, nitrogen, uranium is a great example. I don't think France actually has the stockpiles that we necessarily think they do. I think a lot of that exploitation was then selling it, you know, to the rest of the world because they're trying to balance their books uh, in terms of their budget. So, yeah, it's absolutely true. And you can apply this to any resource in the world. I mean, you know, whether you agree with renewables or not, there's a, the bottom line with the whole renewable situation is there's going to be resources we need. And increasingly, those resources are diminishing. 
So like silver is going to be a problem. Then we're going to massive more increase in production, a lack of, of silver resources. Where are the resources anyway? Largely in the global south. And there comes a point, and this is the, the predicament the West faces, if in the future, you know, the West can price uranium or whatever it wants to. But the bottom line is these nations will go, we're not pricing it in dollars and we're not pricing it in Western markets. We're going to price it ourselves. And, you know, and we are going to sell to our the friendly nations, at, I don't know, whatever price per pound for uranium. But for you, the West, oh, it's double the price. Welcome to the new colonialism in reverse. You know, and, and this is the point that they will just dictate the price. I mean, it's like Russia sells energy to whoever it wants at whatever price. I mean, all this spot price nonsense is they don't price energy in those terms. This is why all this, this stuff, I mean, all these prices in Brent WTI are for oil is so the United States can then go out and go, we want to pay this price in dollars for oil. And they're not even going to get it at that price. So it's this situation where, yes, very much it's a, a question of he who has the resources and the West is going to, how long is it going to take for the African nations to trust the West? I mean, it's going to take a very long time. And then there's, you know, there's no guarantees of uh, if you cooperate with them, the West, this is going to make a scrap of difference at some point. They may just decide to try and overthrow another government or, or instigate a war or whatever they want to do. And therefore, the trust's gone and, and the West will pay an enormous price because of its behavior and its outrageous treatment of these people. So as we're wrapping up here, because we're going on an hour here, you know, another kind of side to this story, I don't know if you've been seeing these stories on deep sea mining, but we've seen Norway make inroads on deep sea mining. And we've also seen, I don't know if you saw that story where the U.S. extended, I, I don't know if you'd call it their continental shelf yes. unilaterally, right? Where are just like way out if you look on the map and also north of Alaska, like a huge amount. And I think it speaks to this whole discussion of like the, all of a sudden deep sea mining, to me, it's sort of like, for lack of a better term, a kind of desperate measure. Like, it seems to be a sign a little bit, right? Because it's like, where do you go? I mean, are, where are you going to mine in Europe? And it's almost impossible to open a mine these days with all of the regulation, or it takes a long time, even in Canada, right? And that's kind of an issue they're trying to fix. But, you know, it's still an ongoing issue. And deep sea mining to me seems like they've literally run out of, they're running out of places to look. So let's go underwater. And this seems to, maybe it's not a bad idea. And maybe we'll save our hide that way to a certain degree. Is that your impression oh, as well? Yeah, it's total desperation. I mean, here's the thing. The U.S. likes to tell the world, we're the biggest energy producer. We produce more oil and gas than any other nation. Well, if that were true, why, why are you reaching desperate measures to just unilaterally go, well, we've extended our waters by, by enormous amount of distance. I mean, you know, you talk about criticizing China and the South China Sea and putting islands where they shouldn't. Well, the U.S. is doing this because they're desperate, because they don't have the energy that they like to convince the world they have. They don't have this bottomless pit of oil and gas. And the desperation is, is has to be factored in that they're also going, um, we're going to be in the future. We know we're going to be, you know, the, the global South nations are not going to want to trade with us. 
And they're not going to give us all energy. They're going to sell energy to other global South nations, a friendly nation. They're all going to work together and cooperate. So we need an alternative. But here's the problem. Extending your continental shelf is, is, is no guarantee. I mean, people think that just means, oh, there's all these assets, you know, deep sea uh, drilling operations. It's all guaranteed. It's in the ground and we just get it out the ground and everyone's happy. They don't even know it exists. It might not exist in economic terms. I mean, yes, deep sea mining is improving. I mean, mining techniques are a lot better than they used to be and costs are being reduced. But back to this point, if your energy supply for the United States is diminishing and you're having to buy energy on the open market, and, you know, you, you need lots of energy to get energy out the ground. <laughs> I mean, so it's it's a huge problem and they're just speculating, guessing, and they're trying to convince everyone, oh, we we, we don't need. Russian energy. We all, we've got all these resources. Okay, yeah, Norway can make these statements, but let's see some feasibility and viability plans to uh, that's going to say, well, if we extract oil from this, it's going to how much is it going to cost to get it out the ground? I mean, hello, Iran can manufacture a barrel of oil, produce a barrel of oil for about five dollars a barrel, literally, it costs nothing. How are we going to compete with these nations? Whereas it may, how much is it going to cost us? We don't know. Is it going to cost us $70, $80 a barrel to get it out the ground? It's all about economic viability and who's going to finance all these operations? Who's going to take the big hit that we spend tons of money and then find it's not economically viable? And in the process, we're also telling all these companies, you have to defossilize, you have to embrace the new green revolution. What they're also telegraphing is the green revolution is a total lie. And they all know it's a lot, which is why they go to COP and make all these grandiose statements. Then they all go home and go, well, we're not doing that. No, we'll do it 50 years, I don't know, 100 years, or maybe just never. Let's talk about it and go home and do nothing because they know it's not viable. You know, they know it's not. It's, it's just totally unfeasible to try and exploit a limited resource and which you consume a lot of that resource in the process. Not feasible. So, yeah, it's a, it is desperation because they've suddenly realized, oh, heck, Iran can produce 5, 10 million barrels a day of oil easily and sell it to the world dirty and make a huge profit. And they're panicking, going, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> if that happens, what does that mean for us? I mean, because the, privately they want, they want cheap Russian, Iranian, uh, cheap Iranian energy, and Iran's going, you've got to be joking. All you've done for 40 plus years is try and overthrow our, our government. You're trying to destabilize our country. You're trying to get us involved in wars, which you did around Iraq war is one example, et cetera, et cetera. We don't trust you. So yeah, it's just total desperation and with no guarantee of any success. And, and I think the whole, rather like the US exaggerates everything, I think you'll find that shale oil and gas reserves are nowhere near what they like to make it out to be. And, you know, a lot of big companies got burned by throwing loads of money at that and getting no return. There's no appetite to enter those markets and put huge amounts of capital expenditure with, with no guarantee of any resolution. And if you start then going, we're going to mine offshore, where are you going to mine? And you know, to, to, uh, to exploit potential reserves you think might exist. I mean, whereas, you know, the Russians and all these other the Iranians, et cetera, have enormous proven reserves. I mean, Russia could probably 
provide or the entire world's oil production for the next 200 years just on its own. And this is, the, this is what the West facing. I mean, it's like you'd be sat there going, I think we ought to make friends with them. Let's, let's just stop doing it. You know, yeah, but they won't. So they'd rather just keep digging a hole for themselves and thinking that somehow they can dig their way out of it. But if someone gives you a spade, don't keep digging because all you'll do is dig a hole so deep you can't get out of it. And that's part of the, the it is, it's total desperation. I mean, we're not saying it's not feasible. But it's a huge gamble with no, and no guarantee of success and rather like this big plan that we're offering an alternative to the Chinese Belt and Road and oh, we'll have some preliminary plans out soon. And it was all going to involve the Indians and the Saudis and the Jordanians. And it was all, no one's heard anything. You know why? Because it's just not even going to happen. Because everyone knows it's ludicrous and it's completely unviable to do it. But this is the U.S. just desperately trying to say to the world, don't join multipolarity. Be with us. You can trust us. We're the future. And they're all looking at the U.S. and the U.K. and its allies going, you've got to be joking. Why? We don't trust you. You aren't the future. You know, you're a leopard and you can't change your spots. We all know this. And that's the, that's the dilemma the West faced. So trying to go offshore and find energy reserves is is just is not is just trying to fool yourself, fool your people, fool the world, and the world's going, we're not being fooled anymore by it. Well, that Belt and Road alternative was a headline that it came and it went. I never heard <laughs> about that. Like I don't know if you saw another story about it, but it literally was a kind of a feel-good headline for two days and you just never saw it again. Paul from the Serious Report. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner Podcast and sharing your perspective. Well, thank you for having me on as well. Much appreciated. Thank you once again to Paul from the Serious Report for sharing his very interesting perspective and insights on what is happening in the world. Also, a big thank you to FM Global for sponsoring this week's episode and sharing a very interesting view on risks at the mine site. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again on this very interesting journey. We have a fabulous guest next week. If everything goes according to plan, John Gorman from the Canadian Nuclear Association. It should be fascinating to hear what he has to say. Nuclear energy people are in very heavy demand right now, so it was great for John to come on. Until next time, if you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.